this morning. Um, a little bit different feel to our service. Uh, I would encourage you this morning to um, take some time to pause and to think. And um, Our focus this morning is on the death of Jesus. And the Lord's Supper is a memorial uh, to the death of Jesus. And so today we pause to remember what God did for us through his son's death to put us into right relationship with him. This morning is a time for us to pause and to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made and the difference that it makes in our lives. Uh, this week as a nation, we have also spent a day of remembrance. Um, on Tuesday was the 17th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, it's hard to watch those videos even 17 years later and to think of almost 3,000 people that, that died that day and, and the ripple effect that it's caused in our lives. Um, I thought of the memorials this week, um, obviously at Ground Zero in New York City, uh, in the fields outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania also at the Pentagon outside of Washington DC um, the, the, the phrase the motto from those first days was never forget never forget um, I don't know I kinda had this sense in my own life and in America's life that Yes, we remember on 9-11, but many times we, we forget the tragedy. Um, I have the same sense about the death of Jesus. My fear in my own life and in your lives is that we say the little phrases and the phrases I'll talk about later. Sim four simple words, Christ died for us. That's really what this morning, I mean, if there's four words, Christ died for us. Uh, it was the most significant event in all of human history, but I'm afraid that we forget. Uh, it almost, I'll be honest with you, it almost even seems trite to me today to focus on those four simple words, Christ died for us. Because we kind of say those things, and it's just like, yeah, I understand. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I don't know if Jesus had a sense of that when he met with his disciples, but really the motto for the Lord's Supper is never forget. Never forget what it cost Jesus for your salvation. Um, the works of redemption in the cross started centuries before Jesus was crucified. Um, the night that he met with his disciples before his crucifixion, in fact, he used the framework of the Old Testament uh, to look at those stories. One of my daily my Bible readings this, this week, and some of you guys are with me on this, 
the story of Genesis 22. Uh, God says to Abraham, go and sacrifice your son. And man, you just begin to read that story and you, it's just a foreshadowing of God giving his own son. And uh, the ram that's caught in the thicket that is sacrificed in the place of Isaac. Ultimately, God didn't ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. But 2,000 years after that, God said, I'm going to sacrifice my own son. I wouldn't ask you to do it, but I'll do it for you because I love you. Jesus used the framework of the Passover the night before his crucifixion to help the disciples not only remember in the years that followed, but also to understand what his death was about. The story of Passover, uh, when God was going to deliver him out of Egypt, and God said on that night before the deliverance occurs, take a lamb, slay the lamb, take some of the blood, and post it on the door post outside your home. And that night when the death angel comes, when the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over your house and the firstborn will not be taken. And so all of this imagery of the, sl the, the lamb that was slain and the blood that was applied and the death angel passing over. Uh, on that night, they also took unleavened bread from that first Passover. And I don't know if their unleavened bread was like these little crackers we served as Baptists or not, but probably not. But I know the Jews today take matzo bread and it's like a cracker. And so it, it breaks. I mean, it, it kind of snaps when you break it. And so it says that Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. You could almost hear the snap of that cracker uh, that Jesus said, just like our forefathers ate the unleavened bread the night before and the days that followed, that so I am like that unleavened bread. It's kind of interesting that in the Jewish culture, um, leaven became a symbol of sin. And so when Jesus takes the unleavened bread the imagery is that it is without sin. And so when it says that Jesus, he said, my body which is broken for you, he became the sinless sacrifice uh, for our sins. It ultimately paid the price for our sins. Uh, obviously that night also Jesus, as a part of the Passover meal, took the cup filled with wine. And he said, this is my, my blood which is shed for you. Uh, he drew all the way back to the Old Testament, all those stories that in God's pattern, it was always blood that covered sin. It was always blood that covered sin. It was the only way. Um, Paul speaks about these things in 1 Corinthians 11. And he says, for I received from you, I'm sorry, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread 
and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The implication that Paul draws is if Jesus did this for you, there are a certain level of expectation of the life that you ought to live. If you have received the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, it would be unworthy to live a life that is not in line with that. And I think that's at least part of what Paul is talking about, not to eat in an unworthy manner, but let a man examine himself. So part of what we do today is, yes, we remember, but it also is a time of reflection that says, and what does my life look like in response as a reflection that if Jesus died for me, then how should I live? And so this is a time that we reflect and we are challenged. Uh, for us as a church, we do this four times a year. Um, hopefully there's other times that we examine uh, where we are. But for sure, this is a time that we examine um, our lives and whether they are a reflection of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. Uh, I'm going to ask the deacons if they would come forward at this time. Uh, I would say to you that uh, we invite all of you to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you know that you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior uh, and you have examined your life, then we would, uh, we would invite you to partake of that. I think of... Uh, Two young ladies right over here, Paisley Shaw and Chesney Cashney, Cashmere, that this is their first time to receive the Lord's Supper. Amen. Doesn't that just bless your heart? There may be others today. Uh, but uh, that blesses my heart to think about that. And so uh, Jesus on that night uh, took the bread as they would have done in, in the Passover meal. the unleavened bread and uh, he said this is my body which is broken for you brother Gary would you lead us in prayer father we just thank you for your love God and your grace God we pray that as we uh, reflect on uh, this time God that you'll just uh, you'll speak to us God you'll uh, give us clarity God of, of who you are in our lives father we thank you uh, just for uh, the sacrifice of, of your body loving us the way you do. In your name we pray. Amen.
lovingly, which is given for you. The story of redemption would always involve the blood. And so that night, actually in the Passover meal, there were a number of cups. But this was the last cup, the cup of redemption. And it, um, Jesus told his disciples that they should always remember that it is always required that blood be shed to cover sin. Uh, Brother Ted, would you lead us in prayer?
on that night, Jesus said, take, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. I wanted us to spend a few moments this morning um, talking about why Jesus died, why he had to die, and how that factors into our salvation. Paul, in the book of Romans, lays out uh, how a person is saved, what it means to be saved, what it is that God does. Uh, these weeks we've been talking about so great a salvation. Uh, what is it that God does when he saves us? And when you begin to go through those chapters in Romans, he begins to paint this picture and really setting up what it is that God does. And he talks about a righteous God. And he talks about our sin. And really Paul spends a couple chapters in just talking, particularly chapter 1, on a righteous God. That God is not only righteous, but he's perfectly righteous. Which means there can be no unrighteousness that he allows into his presence. And uh, the reality is, is that we are not only sinners, but... We are completely infected by sin. And so I, I've painted this picture in the last several weeks of this, this, this gap between a righteous God and us as sinners. And, and quite honestly, if we don't get that, uh, we really can't move on to what else God would say to us. In fact, if, if we think there is some way that we can bridge that gap in and of ourselves, there's no reason for a Savior if we can do it on our own. Uh, but I would contend that, that the gap is so great, here it is, that only God could bridge that gap. No human being, no scheme of man, nothing that I can contrive in my life or, or work up. Um, we started talking last week in this tension of the gap, and we talked about God beginning to bridge that gap by grace. Our word last week was grace, that God extends his grace to us even before we turn to him. God is the one who initiates salvation. We see this in the life of Paul. Uh, we, we see it in all of our lives, that God was searching for me ever before I turned to him, before I was ever searching for him. He was searching for me. Um, And I, I just wanted to set up last week this one truth that, in essence, the beginning point of grace is that when God was righteous and we were sinners, that God looked upon us with favor and love instead of condemnation. That's the starting point. In fact, that's kind of all we talked about last week, that when I was a sinner and God was a righteous God, and when you thought that God would simply look down upon me in judgment and condemnation. God loved me. He looked upon me with favor. And, and that, that was the statement last week. But there's something else to grace that I want us to talk about today and to wrap our brains around. 
It was not simply that God looked upon us with favor in our sinful, godless state. Here it is. God did something about it. You know, it's one thing for me to have feelings of love, compassion, and grace. It's another thing for me to do something to bridge the gap. Grace is not only God looking upon us with favor and love and compassion, but grace is, in fact, the word grace simply means gift. Grace is God saying, I will do for them what they cannot do for themselves. I would contend today that when the gap was so great and we were in our sins, that God did something that only he could do to bridge that gap. Um, I had three verses. Peyton, I just want my one verse. Romans 5, 8. We ended with this last week. Um, I have to be careful because I memorized it else in another way. Romans 5, 8. And we could look at a lot of scriptures in Romans that he talks about this concept. But Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to notice first the word demonstrates. To me, demonstrates is a word that means God did something. He, in fact, uh, some of your translations may say God showed or God proved his own love for us. I would contend today, yes, God had compassionate feelings towards us, but God did something. He didn't just feel, but he did. He, he demonstrated his love toward us. His love was a, was a love of action. And as we talked about last week, while we were still sinners, so before we ever turned to him when we were still enemies with God. And here's his solution. And it's those four words. Christ died for us. That's the great solution. That was the fix. That was God's means of salvation. When, when we looked at our, our, our great gap between us and we could not bridge that gap, I want you to understand this. God cannot just ignore or look past our sin. God cannot just go, well, bless their hearts. They're trying. They're doing pretty good. It's all right. Well, I'm just going to let them slide on this. It's not just that God is righteous. God is perfectly righteous. He cannot condone, look past, or ignore any unrighteousness. There will be no unrighteousness in heaven. And here's the thing, though. We didn't possess the ability to bridge the gap. How is it that God, as the righteous judge, can have a person come before him who's a sinner how can he not judge that person? Quite honestly, from a human perspective, we don't understand. 
There's no way. There's no way out of this situation. He is a perfectly righteous judge. We are complete sinners. God cannot look past our sin. How? What is the fix? What is the solution? How? Christ died for us. God looked at the situation and he said, the only solution that satisfies my righteousness and deals with their sinful state is for me to come and die for them. And I know if you've been in church all your life, you, you say these little phrases, Christ died for us. I'm afraid it becomes a little trite or trivial to us. And we don't realize that we had no way out and that God paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. Christ died for us. Christ The solution was personal because it required that God's son die. It was personal. God was saying, if I don't fix this, there is no other way out of this. I have to fix it. Um, All sin is ultimately against God. And I know we sin against one another, but even when we sin against one another, it is, it is a violation of the standards of a righteous God. All sin is against God. Ultimately, God was the only one who could fix our state. We as ungodly, sinful people, <laughs> we're in a spiritual state. We can't fix it. There's no way. We can't simply just do better. We can't fix it. But sin is against God. And he was ultimately the only one who could fix it. Only God could bridge the gap. The way he bridged the gap, Christ died. When we deserve death, Christ came and sacrificially died on the cross, which he did hours after uh, the Lord's Supper that we've just celebrated. We say in our Africa stories, the prophet said that he would be whipped and he would be beaten. Christ not only died on the cross, he suffered on the cross. Not only did he suffer on the cross, but in line with all that God had taught in the Old Testament, his blood was shed. And ultimately, through his body and his blood, the payment for sin was paid the sinless sacrifice 2 Corinthians 5:21 it says Paul says and he made him God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God Uh, Oh, there's another word (laughs) that describes this. And I don't know, I'm even looking in my my study books this morning goes, now, what does that word again remain? It is, is, in, in 
Romans 3.25, it says that he was the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. It's not a word probably you've used this week. Maybe ever. Maybe you skip over it in Sunday school when they ask you to read that scripture. It's like, mm, the P word. You know, mm, okay, whatever that, I don't know what that means. Propitiation. Propitiation, and sometimes I'll translate it when I read those verses. I'll say the, the sacrifice. Propitiation is what satisfies a holy God, what appeases God, which pays or actually the Old Testament word is a word that means to cover. When I was in a bad way with God, I needed propitiation. I needed my sins covered. I needed God appeased to be satisfied. God had to be satisfied. How is God going to be satisfied to, to justify us in our sin? God said, ultimately, my son will have to die to pay for their sin. He will be the propitiation. I don't know, in uh, Romans 3.25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. First John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the covering, the appeasement, that which satisfies our sin. Uh, only God, only God could look at the situation and come up with a solution. I'm telling you today, it is a solution that can be expressed in four words. Christ died for us. And it's so simple, maybe it's become trite to us. It's so simple, it's, it's a truth that I have to talk to when I talk to children, and children grasp it. Christ paid the penalty for my sin. He died for me. He was my sacrifice. Even a child can understand that because it's that, that third word, which is, it says Christ died for. It's a preposition that means on behalf of. Christ died on behalf of us. Almost the sense of substitute in the, in the place of. He died in my place. It's the same word that's used because uh, Paul has already expressed this in verse 6 of Romans 5 when he says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, on behalf of, in place of, as a substitute. But here, here's, here's what it comes down to today. It's that final word, us. It's not that Jesus died for some plan, program, scheme, fix. Or even the general sense, Jesus died for salvation. No, Jesus died for us. That's what Paul says. And all of a sudden it becomes personal. No, but this is true. Jesus died for you. He did. 
Paul realized that. Paul didn't say Christ died for you. That would have been true too. No, it was personal to Paul. Christ died for us. Paul meant you and me. I don't know when Paul kind of came to this conclusion, but I know that when we get record of Paul preaching, he's talking about the death, the crucifixion, the sacrifice of Jesus that was the ultimate plan and solution for God. Uh, I know he would, he would say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, I think, 123, he would say, we preach Christ crucified. That's the way he summarized his message, that Christ died for you. I, I thought of that scripture in, in Galatians 3.1, and he's really, he's kind of chastising the Galatians, but anyhow, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And here's the phrase, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Paul said, I talked and I talked and I preached and I taught. Christ died for you. It was clearly portrayed before your eyes that Christ died for your sins. For Paul, it was personal. For me and for you, it is also personal. Christ died for you. I want you to understand it was the final sacrifice. There's not another sacrifice. All through the Old Testament, all those animals died. Jesus Christ came. No, that's it. Do you know why? Because he was the perfect Lamb of God. In, in God's scheme of things, because Jesus was perfect, his death paid for all of our sins and for all the people of all time. His sacrifice was final. It was complete. There is no sin. He died for all sins. Salvation, the payment for sin is complete. And this is, I know, this is offensive to some people. It's, it's fine with me because it's not what I, it's not my words, it's God's words. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. God doesn't need your help to take away your sins. In fact, you can't do anything. We couldn't do anything. That's why Jesus had to come and die. He was, it was complete. It's all done. Everything's taken care of. There's, and the other thing is that his death is the only way. And I want to end with this. If God did that, to went, went to that extent to pay for your sins, for us to look for another route... <laughs> To get there is offensive to the sacrifice that God has provided. No, it has to be completely in that the only thing I trust is in Jesus' blood, his sacrifice. It's what the, the title of my sermons come from, from Hebrews 2, 3. 
How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will we ever be saved if we walk away from the one way that God provided? Christ died for us. Final, complete, exclusive, once for all, the only way. Um, Brother Shane's going to come. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Um, but let me say this, and I'll be at the front, Byron will be at the front. You can come to the altar. Um, Jesus died for you. The question is, what is your response? If he loved you that much, if he went to that extent, what has been your response to him? To ignore it, to walk away, to look for some other route is offensive to a holy God who said, this is the only way I could ever come up with that I'm going to have to come myself and give my own life for you. And my question to you, each one in this room, what have you done with that? And how shall you escape or I escape if I neglect or you escape so great a salvation that God would love me that much and go to all that extent? It requires a response. Today is your day to simply say, I surrender my own pursuit to be made right with you. I acknowledge my sin and that you are a righteous God. And the only way I can come to you is through your son and I just surrender to that. And I ask, in childlike faith, Jesus, would you apply your blood to my life? So someday when the death angel comes, he will pass over when he sees the blood of the only perfect Lamb of God. So this morning we invite you to come uh, as the cross calls for a response from us. And there's a place mercy reigns and never dies And there's a when streams of grace flow deep and wide, where all the love I've ever found it comes like a flood, it comes flowing. Yeah. Uh-huh.